It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson, the Explainer-in-Chief, is here. Our topic of the day, your questions, Steve's answers. There's a little bit of security news, too. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 449, recorded April 1st, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 185. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it ought to be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. And by ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with ShareFile from Citrix. Try ShareFile today. For a 30-day free trial, go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers uh, your security and privacy. And uh, with this guy here, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson. Hello, Steve. Good to sure, see move you. Move my hand more slowly. It sort of blurs yeah, when I do that. The Skype yeah. doesn't handle uh, fast motion mm-hmm. too well. We want to say, it is, we are recording this on April 1st. It is April Fool's Day. There will be no April Fool's jokes in this show at all. Not from here. And that's not a... We're not trying to, to set you up for one by telling you there won't be any. There actually won't be any. So, you know, and and I was thinking, well, would have if had I planned ahead, you know, April 1st, how often does that happen? Please don't answer that question. I'm sure we have people who <laughs> We know the answer, out. Steve. <laughs> uh, but, oh, you have a show but, on April 1st. Probably doesn't happen but once every, say, seven years. Yeah, there yeah. are. We have, we have a, a neat podcast. It was a, a su- surprisingly quiet week from a security standpoint, which is perfect for a Q&A, because normally, the, the, uh, traditionally, the Q&As have run long. Um, but, you know, there was, we do have some additional news um, from a research project that the world's cryptographers did just to see how bad that NSA, RSA collusion actually was. And it turns out it's far worse than we knew. Oh, no. Um, then the question arose in a sort of an unfortunate computer world column about whether Google's always HTTPS for Gmail was a bad thing or not. Um, an interesting tip for installing impossible to enter by hand Wi-Fi passwords in visitors' iPhones, uh, the predicted collapse in cloud storage uh, pricing, uh, the, an odd question, or I mean, a sort of an up in the air question about advertising for Firefox, a bunch of miscellaneous stuff. And we have 11 listener and follower questions. I mentioned follower because I got about half of them from over the course of the week, people tweeting things. I thought, well, that's a great question for the next podcast. So just Yay. overall, um, some interesting news, more more potpourri and miscellaneous than than security, but because it's, it's not much really happened this week. So <laughs> good, you know. We certainly, we certainly had three weeks of talking about iOS security. And well, you know, boy, that next of, week it'll be the last day for XP. So oh yeah, it's funny too because I'm sitting here looking at my end of support uh, Windows Seven, whatever you call it, 
applet Do you thing. have a ticker? And, and I... <laughs> Well, I remember when it was in three digits. I remember when it was like 385, and I was thinking, "Ah," or even higher. And it was like, ah, it's never going to happen. And now it says 06. Ooh. So, yeah, it's interesting that it has a leading zero. I don't know why, but anyway. uh, uh, Yeah, Yeah. so next week Mm -hmm. will be that. All right. Um, Good. Well, this is going to be a fun show. I've got the questions in front of me. I've got your uh, show notes. We've got a lot to talk about, so we'll get right to it. And once again, don't worry. You don't have to. uh... I think on a show like this, the idea of having to parse through everything we say to see if it's made up is not a good thing on security show. Uh, You you don't. This is not the place for April Fool's jokes. I completely agree. And it's just people don't don't have a sense of humor. But well. Actually, we got so much feedback from last week's fun. Oh yeah, with the, with the, the cash the, spewing, the spewing ATM. Yeah, <laughs> a number of people said they spit out their lunch. They yes, I heard that also. Yeah, I mean that uh, like do not drink coffee while listening to you know the Security Now podcast when when yeah. we're on a roll. Yeah, and so we took care of all the levity last week, and and people ought to know me by now. It's really sort of not my. I'm too serious. I mean, I I believe things and well and the I'm topic cautious. is serious we don't want to uh, yeah i mean when you're talking security you don't want any ambiguity or confusion in the content it should be clear that we're talking yeah, about so we're not stuff. doing that so, yeah we're, we're serious about that this is this is not a setup or anything i gotta hit april fool's day all right ladies and gentlemen our show today brought to you by our friends at pro xp and if you're going online there is danger lurking around every corner well at least the risk that your privacy will be compromised if you're on an open wi-fi access spot but frankly even if you're at home now we know internet service providers are watching what you do they've got that six strikes rule they're trying to see if you're doing anything they deem illegal and block it if you uh, if you want to watch uh, or, or view content in other countries a lot of times geographic restrictions will prevent that well, ProXPN is a great way around all of that. It is an open VPN solution that's hosted not just in the U.S., but all over the world, Singapore, London, Amsterdam. So when you surf using ProXPN, you can appear in those cities. ProXPN is 100% secure, too. We, we know that OpenVPN really works. Um, the encryption key is 2,048 bits. The encryption tunnel is 512 bits. This is this is open VPN. It's strong encryption. It protects you online. It protects your privacy online, and that's the way the internet was meant. They even have mobile apps, which I love. Their iOS and Android apps. The Android app actually uh, adds VPN to Android, uh, which it doesn't normally have. So you don't have to use PPT, PPTP. Although you can, they Pro XPN supports that as well. It's just not quite as uh, solid as Open VPN. We want you to try it. We love it. Uh, I use it myself. I encourage others to do so. Every time you surf, protect your privacy online with ProXPN. If you're on a desktop or a laptop, ProXPN has Windows and Mac software, too, that gives you advanced controls. You can select ports. You can connect at startup. You can even select which programs should be shut down if, for some reason, your anonymity has been compromised. That's really nice. I want you to try it. It's it's uh it, well we got here's the deal you can try the free version the premium version is faster and better in, in a lot of ways take a look at uh, proxpn.com/twit and you can see the differences we got it set up so that really you might as well just try the premium version first of all normally ten dollars a month or seventy five bucks a year uh, we have an offer code SN20 that cuts twenty percent off of that 
And not just for the first month or year, but forever. That means less than five bucks a month when you buy the yearly plan. That's very, very affordable protection. And we've also arranged a cancellation, seven-day cancellation for a full refund so you don't have to, you can try it and then say, yeah, this is not for me, and cancel, and you'll get all your money back. I don't think you will. It really is the best uh, VPN I've tried. Open VPN through proxpn.com slash twit and use the offer code SN20 and you'll get 20% off for the life of your account. Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte, there must be some some security news this week. Oh, unfortunately there is. Yeah. So <clears throat> some of the things that we discuss that we consider to be vulnerabilities are sort of annoyingly theoretical. You know, they're like the 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 ivory tower academics have determined that when the moon is in a certain phase and this sea seems unusually quiet if you inject a packet into a certain port at that time maybe something can happen i mean there it's you know some of these things just seem really obscure and one of the most controversial recent issues has been this so-called dual ec DRBG. That's the dual EC as an elliptic curve. DRBG is deterministic random bit generator. This was that random number generator, which for some reason became the default choice in RSA's BeSafe library suite, which covers all kinds of different languages. And um, it was an article in Reuters that then alleged that RSA had received $10 million in, in, a, in a deal whose terms we still don't know, but that was from the NSA, and they, Reuters alleged that it was in order for RSA to make this random number generator the default. Now, that was when there were four choices. This was the fourth one and was orders of magnitude slower than the others. And even at the time, security researchers were raising red flags because we there were just too many unknowns associated with it. It was like, well, okay, why do we need an elliptic curve-based pseudo-random number generator? We've already got three good ones based on solid, proven architectures. Yeah, especially so, if it's it's slower, it's suspect, it's worse. Why would anyone pick it? Well, and more than more than that, I mean it's it's one thing to say we'd like you to make it an option, but the way the the way the B-safe library works is you can request any of them, but if you make no request, then you get the default. Oh. And I've often oh. spoken of the so-called yeah. what I the the my term, the tyranny of the default, and that is that what's set as the default is what's most often used. I mean, for example, XP had a firewall in it from the first day. It wasn't until Service Pack 2 turned it on by default that we got any protection because even though it was there and everybody was telling people to turn it on, nobody did. So, so again, default settings are might as well be the only settings available for all intents and purposes. A 
a group, and I I can't even enumerate their names. They're they're if you follow that link, dualec.org, Leo, here in the show notes, that'll take you to a page where on the left hand side it lists the cryptographers that were involved, and this is a who's who of the academic, serious, hardcore crypto community. I mean, among them we've got Dan Bernstein um, and. Um, and and uh, Matt and, you know, p- people who were often talking about. What these guys did was they said, okay, we, let's, let's quantify the risk which this, the presence of the dual ECDRBG actually represents. So to do that, because the code that contained this was not open source – they had to reverse engineer and dis- decompile, disassemble the RSA B-Safe package, Microsoft's S-channel, uh, which is the secure channel library in Windows. And fortunately, OpenSSL is open and open source, so that one they didn't have to reverse engineer. Um, what they did was they, they, they said, let's assume that the NSA does know something about the elliptic curve that was chosen for this. In order to find out what that means, let's replace the elliptic curve that they may know about with an elliptic curve that we do know about. So the point is that it's very it's very trivial for the cryptographers to choose specific elliptic curves that have weaknesses that they know about. Very much the way the NSA may well have chosen this particular elliptic curve that we got from them. And so what, the, what these guys did is they reverse engineered the B-safe package to find the elliptic curve spec inside and changed it to one that whose weaknesses they understood in the same way that the NSA may understand the weaknesses of this particular one. Then they did that for the RSA B-Safe package, Microsoft's security suite in Windows, so-called S-Channel, and OpenSSL. So in their paper, they said, major findings are as follows. The RSA B-Safe implementation of TLS make the dual EC backdoor particularly easy to exploit compared to the other libraries analyzed. The C version of B-Safe makes a drastic speedup in the attack possible by broadcasting long contiguous strings of random bytes and by caching the output from each generator call. The Java version of B-Safe includes fingerprints in connections, making it relatively easy to identify them in a stream of network traffic. S-Channel, that's Microsoft Security Suite, does not implement the current dual EC standard. It omits one step of the dual EC algorithm. This omission does not prevent attacks. In fact, it makes them slightly faster. And then finally, they said a previously unknown bug was discovered in OpenSSL that prevented the library from running when dual EC was enabled. 
So it wasn't even functional, actually. It was like installed, but apparently no one ever tried to use it. They said it is still conceivable that someone is using dual EC in OpenSSL, although, frankly, this is me saying I think that's probably unlikely, since the bug has an obvious and very easy fix, which was applied in order to evaluate the resulting version of OpenSSL, which the paper calls OpenSSL-fixed. OpenSSL-fixed turns out to provide additional entropy um, with each call to the library. In practice, this additional input can make attacks significantly more expensive than for the other libraries. So that was a good thing. But they found something else that was, again, sort of chilling. They said evidence was discovered of an implementation of a non-standard TLS extension called Extended Random in RSA's BeSafe products. This extension, so this is, a, this is a, an extension to the TLS protocol. This extension, co-written at the request of the National Security Agency, allows a client to request longer TLS random nonces from the server, a feature which, if enabled, would speed up the dual EC attack by a factor of up to 65,000. And I thought, okay, wait a minute, extended random, what's that? So I tracked it down. There is online an IETF um, draft, and sure enough, it is co-authored. One of the authors is National Security uh, Agency, the NSA, and under the, the rationale, they explain the United States Department of Defense has requested a TLS mode which allows the use of longer public randomness values for use with high security level cipher suites like those specified in suite B. The rationale for this, as stated by DOD, is that the public randomness for each side should be at least twice as long as the security level for cryptographic parity, which makes the 224 bits of randomness provided by the current TLS random values insufficient. This document specifies an extension, which allows for additional randomness to be exchanged in hello messages. So to unwrap that a little bit, remember that when we've, we've, and we've covered the way SSL TLS protocol operates, that each side generates its own random nonce and provides it to the other, and they use that for their ephemeral key agreement uh, technology for, for building a, 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 um, a, a shared key such that nobody who's eavesdropping, who doesn't change the data, that isn't an active man in the middle, is able to to get in the way and to, to figure out the secret that they then are able to share. So it t completely makes sense that, that, I mean, like you, the, this statement about why this, this so-called extra or extended random would be useful is, is incontrovertible at the same time. When you and, and I guess the NSA would be the means through which this is done, 
But what they realized was by having RSA support this, a client was able to ask for more randomness from the server and thus obtain much more state information. And as they, as they actually demonstrated by pulling this off, they were able to get a dramatic acceleration in cracking. And this paper, which, uh, and I saw you had it on the screen there a second ago, Leo, the, the, at dualec.org, anyone who, who's interested uh, can, can read this summary. I found the PDF and then I couldn't find a link to it again, but it shows the time and minutes required to crack the TLS connections. It's kind of stunning. It's frightening. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Well, the only one that's any good is the fixed open SSL. Correct. Yeah. And as they noted, the, the fact that additional entropy is added, and the, you know, the programmers of, of the SSL, uh, of the open SSL library, must have done that because they oh, thought, yeah. eh, you know, Just in uh, case. Just we're in not case. so sure. We're not yeah. so sure where that came from, but what did it do? It like it like the worst one looks like it was the as as I mentioned the C library <laughs> of safe. B safe. <laughs> Zero I don't even know how point, much time point oh four minutes is, but it's not yeah. a lot. <laughs> no, no, four hundredths of a minute. It's less than so a second. Less less than a second. No, wait, four hundredths of a minute. It's not less, less than a second. Yes, but not but not much more. No, there's sixty seconds in a minute. It's it's. Oh, yeah, okay, 4100 is 1 25th of a minute. Yeah, so it's a couple of seconds, yeah. Yeah, a couple yeah. seconds, bang. Thank bang. you very much. Boom! Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and now, the now best, they, though, is uh, what, 2 to the, 2 to the, I don't even, 2 to the 83, I can't even read that number. Right. That, big number. They, <laughs> big, big number. So, uh, so it doesn't really affect OpenSSL because it's broken in OpenSSL and it's not turned on by default. And if you turn it on, it breaks it. So anyone who thinks maybe it would be a good idea probably just turns it off and goes back to what right. everybody else is using. Um, also, be safe. They, did, they, they believed they were able to fingerprint servers that were using be safe. And, and looking across the entire net, at at servers offering SSL, it wasn't effectively present. But the danger is people using BeSafe in their own security suites or in their own like VPNs or link packages or things. I mean, you know, the idea is this is a crypto library that you use for building into proprietary crypto systems, which is precisely what the NSA would like to have access to and what they, you know, even if they had compromised a, a, a certificate authority or were running some sort of HTTPS proxy, that wouldn't be able to intercept proprietary crypto. And so, you know, the RSA was where you purchased historically, I'm not sure that's the case any longer, where you purchased your crypto libraries to build proprietary solutions. And, and if... This dual ECDRBG was the default random number generator, and somebody was bringing up an S like a proprietary link between corporate infrastructures. For for example, you'd use TLS. In which case, wham! You know, inst given that it is true that the NSA knows something about the particular elliptic curve that they provided 
to NIST in order to assemble this, and it's now seeming, you know, suspiciously like they do. And again, there there's no reason to believe that this, like this extended random, is a deliberate additional hook. But oh my lord, you couldn't design something better to to give you this leverage than to say, oh, let's put this in to be safe because it's an extension to TLS and we want to be fully compliant, even though it's not a standard. It hasn't even been adopted yet, but it's a way of telling the client, the, the, the client telling the server, tell me more about your random numbers. And, and as these guys again demonstrated by actually doing it, it provides a basically a 16-bit Shortening of security. That that that's where that sixty five thousand comes from. Six five five three six times easier to crack this. So, you know, Leo, I, I I hate this. I mean, the reason the reason I I mess with computers and I code is that they obey rules and you know what's going on and and you have a deterministic world. And so suddenly now we've you know this aspect of of computing that is so important has been just thrown into a huge gray area where we just have to say well we don't know i mean maybe but we don't know what's going on uh yeah it's uh disturbing yeah so there was a weird computer world article um uh, and it's called the reality check column. And unfortunately, I think that Robert Mitchell, who writes it, needs maybe his own reality check. Maybe he was at deadline. Um, I, I can't explain this. But he argues that he actually does argue in this column that Google turning Gmail on forcefully for everybody is bad. That what? He, yes, that's Lord, what he says. Oh, you will use HTTPS. And so he, he argues that user choice is being removed. Yeah, the choice okay. to be less secure is being removed. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And that response time is hindered. That's and the not fact true. is, it's not true. Yeah. No. You know, they I mean, first of all, nobody is spending more time minimizing response time than Google with, you know, the the proprietary protocols they're moving on, you know, speedy and quick and, and all the things they're doing. And we already know that the only time you get a hit from, from using SSL, you know, HTTPS, TLS, is during the initial handshake and that at, from that point on, successive connections have no detectable overhead and there's now we with computers as powerful as they are even that handshake especially as we're moving away from rsa to good elliptic curve algorithms that's been reduced by an order of magnitude so it's just like what and so when, it's funny because i when i went back after several people tweeted me the column saying, Steve, you know, you were thinking this was a good thing. What do you think? And I and I read it and I thought, okay, well, anyway, I went back and there apparently I'm not the only person to think that Robert was a little bit off the mark with this because he did 
comment that he'd received a lot of similar feedback and quoted one person who just basically said, you know, uh, no, it is a good thing for everybody to have this turned on. You know, he was, I mean, more than by default, it's it's just got to be. And it's easy to understand what a benefit this is if it's only marketing to for everyone, for everyone since last week when this happened to know that that Google, if you're using Gmail, you have HTTPS. End of story. I mean, that's just, that's comforting that there isn't any way to, you know, that Google will accept a non-HTTPS connection from your browser at no point in, in any scenario. So, yeah. Uh, and that's not But I don't tool. have the choice. I know. I want the yeah. choice of what? I don't know really, but. Um, I got a tweet just yesterday, so I haven't had a chance to dig deep into this, and and I, I've provided links in the show notes, so anyone who's interested can. Uh, Carl uh, Cornell, who who tweets from as at California Carl K A R L, he sent me. He, he he actually he first sent me an a his own document that that he was shared with me or he occurred a public link in Dropbox which it's a it's essentially a an XML script for Apple iPhones which which he designed to allow visitors to instantly configure their iPhone for his Wi-Fi network that has a you know a security now style password meaning one he may have gotten from grc.com slash passwords that it's virtually impossible to enter it into any piece of equipment the, the only way you're ever able to do so is by copy and paste and the problem is when visitors come over they want to be on his network you know use his wi-fi so it turns out that that apple has a for like in support of corporate use of iPhones, a co- very comprehensive configuration utility which produces these—I don't know if you call them manifests—or but they're they're like the configuration XML files that allow all kinds of really deep, cool configuration where you can like instantly apply email accounts. You can restrict the application. You can, you know, lock applications. You can you can provision Wi-Fi passwords and so forth. So I just thought, hey, I, this is the kind of thing that's absolutely going to appeal to some percentage of our listeners. And I wanted to pass that on because it's just there's utilities for Windows and Mac which you know Mac OS 10 that'll that'll allow you to step through this and set these things and then produce these these outputs which you then allow a an iPhone or iPad to digest and to lock it down in or pre-configure it in various cool ways so links in the show notes to that uh they're they're nothing that <laughs> that I could ever repeat and we did I've promised that I'm going to update everybody on this, the current state of trust no one cloud storage. We, you know, what, the podcast we did years ago, where I ran through all of the ones that were that were 
either current or coming, uh, you know, like they may have been in beta, uh, was super popular. And uh, naturally, there's been a huge amount of, of change since then. For example, um, Jungle Disk has gone through some changes and, uh, and you know, the world has changed. So I've already been taking notes of of all of the services that I intend to review. Um, and I'm getting people who have been tweeting since. Um, but I noted that as expected, Amazon immediately followed Google's huge reduction in in cloud storage pricing and not to be outdone. And actually because Microsoft explicitly said they would, they Microsoft has also followed suit. Uh, followed Amazon right down, in some cases matching or even undercutting Amazon's pricing. So, I, I, and as we talked about, remember we last week we looked at the price of, I think it was a three terabyte drive at what that cost per gig and what the service providers were charging. And we saw that even at these, you know, Google's new super low pricing, they paid for the storage in like three or four months. So like, yeah, it absolutely makes sense that pricing was ultimately going to, uh, you know, come down to this level. And it's because of that, because, I mean, cloud storage is now, uh, it, it makes so much sense um, that we really do need to, to come back and look at, uh, at the range of solutions that are available. Then I picked up, a sort of a distressing story about, and I guess it's a couple of months old, Leo. You may have already seen this or, or run across this, this notion that Mozilla will be adding advertising to Firefox. No, that's news to me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I use not, Firefox. So I don't really pay that much attention to it, I guess. Right. Um, maybe you can explain something. Why is it that Google is Firefox's major benefactor uh -huh. to the tune of $300 million a year. See, that's the interesting thing about Firefox. It's actually quite profitable because of the Google search box. And it's not just Firefox. Uh -huh. Safari also benefits. Any, any browser that uses the Google search box gets the benefit of Google ads, you know. So, um, yeah, it's actually been very uh, good for the Mozilla project. So, and so it's good for Google, too. So, Absolutely, it's a it's a very okay. nice it's a very nice win win. Okay, yeah. so so here's the deal. Now you don't have. By the way, if you're a user and you say, "Well, I don't want Google," you can change the default search to anything else, and then and we Mozilla know, will get uh, no money uh, from that. The the tyranny of the default. Right. right. <laughs> How many people are going to do that? Um, Mozilla has talked about advertising in the past, and naturally, there's been a huge uproar from users who are really worried about what that means. So they're, uh, Mozilla is approaching this again. And uh, um, Mitchell Baker, who's the chair of the Mozilla Foundation, um, uh, defends Firefox's new ad program and explained a few things. For, for, for Okay, so what, what we know is that what what they're wanting to do is to put tiles on the new tab page. So when you say I open a new tab, and I do that all, all the time, you know, I get 
I think I get just Google. I think I maybe get a tab. In fact, I've got it right here. Let me see what I have. I click on open new tab. Uh, no, it's a blank page. So it's waiting for something to happen. Completely blank. What they're wanting to do is to put something there. Ah, and well, that's not so bad. I have no problem yeah. with that. I, if it's not on the page as I use it, uh, Correct. I, yeah, I, that's not so bad. So the idea is when you create a new tab, there will be something there. Yeah. Rather than right, right, what right now is just a blank page. Now, I, and, I should point out the reason they're considering this is because their deal with Google is about to run out at the end of the year. And yes. they're concerned that Google won't re-up. And that would yes. be a very significant blow to the Mozilla. I mean, you lose $300 million a year. You, <laughs> I can see why they'd be worried. Yes, and that, that's, that's exactly right. In yeah. December of, of 2014, that deal is over. And, you know, and so... So I look at this as, okay, do I mind nine large tiles? And they're saying two of which w might be sponsored. In general, they're wanting to give people links to things they really believe would be useful. But they're saying, yes, and we'd like to survive. And from my standpoint, my Lord, if it's a matter of losing Firefox – or right. putting up with some tiles on the new tab before I put in the URL that I want to go to. Thank you very much. I'm happy that you can put you can make the tile smaller and give me more of them if you want. And no tracking. They are blocking any tracking so that if you click on that, what what the the redirect that occurs has all tracking information explicitly stripped from it and you are not tracked. So, you know, they, it, I believe this is, makes sense as a compromise. And so if at some point, you know, my new tab, when I, you know, update to version 33, I think we're at 28 now, uh, and, I, and it shows me some tiles, hey, fine. If it's that or losing Firefox, um, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I wouldn't be surprised if they add a switch that can disable that anyway. But I, I you know, I agree with. It seems like something they. W it is an open source project still, and yeah. I should point out, Chrome in effect has an ad for Google. When you create a new tab, you do get, you know, uh, eight eight smaller thumbnails of your most visited pages. But right front and center is a big Google search box, and you know, a link to Gmail, and you know, I mean, I, that's in effect an ad for Google, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so and this, I'm just I'm wrapping up with a just a crazy posting and but but there's a, a message here this was and this was someone tweeted it um uh it's the var blog um and he said uh, the title of this entry was why windows xp's demise is bad for linux and open source and i thought what what anyway so basically he he's explaining that he runs Windows XP in a virtual box VM under Linux. And he uses it to edit large book manuscripts, which cause LibreOffice to collapse. But Microsoft Office doesn't. So he runs Microsoft Office in Windows XP to edit large book manuscripts and to play something called Age of Kings. Um, so 
then he says that Win XP is so much leaner than Vista or Windows 7 or Windows 8 that moving up will be impossible. And so this is a perfect example of, of the point I am, I'm going to continue to try to make as I, as I explain what it means to have the, the constant patch drip cut off next week to Windows XP. And here's a perfect example. The guy launches XP uh, to run Office to edit a book manuscript. So, you know, there's no vulnerability introduced there. None. Or to play some XP-hosted video game which he is enamored with. Again, uh, you know, it's like, okay, that's not a problem. So, so all I'm trying to say to people is, is relative to this, you know, end of the XP patch drip is use your heads. You know, think about what this means rather than assuming that it's the end of the world. Um, my contention, and as I have said, we're going to have an interesting period of a few years starting next week to see if I'm crazy or if if I knew what I was talking about. That that this is a tempest in a teapot. That it's a it's a good operating system, and that everything that that uses to connect to the world is still being patched, and that those are the things that represent the lion's share of the vulnerabilities in the operating system. We'll see. We don't, as you know, we don't know what vulnerabilities may have been held back as this is approaching. Um, anyway, I could be wrong. Um, we'll find out. It's coming. I suspect now, we'll Leo. talk about it next week. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Neil Young's Pono. Oh, yes. I invested. Um, I'm wondering, I wanted to alert our listeners only as a public service because the thing has just gone ballistic. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, this is Neil Young's ultra-high-resolution music player, which uh, he is, is is a Kickstarter project. So people can, you know, put... It's P-O-N-O, or put Neil Young Pono into it's, Google. It's, I'm sure you'll go there. Oh yeah, it, just Pono Kickstarter will get you to the Pono. So they wanted it's, to it's raise Hawaiian for righteous. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. They wanted to raise eight hundred thousand in order to create this. They're now at five million two hundred and thirty-seven thousand eight hundred and four at this point, um, with thirteen days to go. So you have two weeks. Check it out if you're interested. The, what it is is a it's attempting to be an as as the name sounds an ultra high resolution music player, meaning that rather than sampling at forty four point one or forty eight kilohertz, they sample at one hundred and ninety two kilohertz, and rather than digitizing at sixteen bits, they digitize at twenty four. Um, I was interested in the technology, so immediately dug into the the digital to analog converter chip that they're using, which That's is actually the key a thirty it. it's a thirty-two bit yeah, uh yeah. D to A. And my lord, I mean that's 
It's a good insane. deck. This company apparently is a very good company that's doing the deck. Yeah. It doesn't do any sampling on its own. I, we should make this clear. It's a player. The point is Correct. it can play back FLAC files, which is a lossless, uh, open source lossless compression format, in as high as 192 kilohertz 24-bit. And the reason Young thinks this is even viable is that many albums are now recorded at high resolutions like that. Of course, when you sample it onto a CD, you, you, you make it much smaller. Its CD's quality is 44, 1 by 16. Right. And uh, even though it's not compressed. So this is not about compression. This is about sampling rates. Right. I, you know, I bought it just because it's 400 bucks. Actually, they have one, but they sold out for 300 bucks. Um, and if it, you know, I, I want to hear it. If it sounds yeah. that good, there are there are those who poo poo it. I yeah, thought you were going to poo poo it. I have a link there to uh, a great technical article yeah, I read that, that, arg yeah. that argues that whereas twenty four bits of sampling size may be useful, the the argue the article argues strongly and technically that and acoustically that the 192 kilohertz sampling is not beneficial and in fact may be detrimental so i, I didn't go through it in de in detail but i just wanted to give our listeners a heads up because wow if it's that popular uh you know we ought to know about it this article is by um the guy monty who created um uh the og vorbis uh compression format so, so he knows a little something about acoustics. He knows acoustics. a lot about acoustics. <laughs> On the other hand, I, and I don't know if he would argue this, uh, there's no question that the com compression, including Og Vorbis, which is not a particularly, in my opinion, good compression uh, technology, takes a lot of the oh, oomph Oh, music. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's my opinion that a higher sample rate, um, it, the, you know, this, is, this goes to that golden ears thing. Because people yeah. say well, well, exactly. analog and, is better than digital, and well, and, and the, also the idea that you're wearing earbuds in traffic. It's well, like, that's not what this is it, for. I got to tell you, this is not about wearing earbuds in traffic. They rec they don't even sell headphones because they say you need to have very very good headphones, and it also has two, has two connections. One that's appropriate for your stereo, so you can play your Pono into oh, your nice. Sonos, which is what I plan nice. to do. Then I'll have a Pono Sono. <laughs> and okay, that can't be a bad thing. <laughs> and I did want to note that uh, the typo keyboard has uh, uh, is threatened by a judge having granted a an injunction uh, which BlackBerry brought. Um, I'm not surprised because the design is a direct ripoff of the BlackBerry keyboard. I mean, anyone who's used a BlackBerry and looks at the at the typo keyboard says, oh, I mean, you know, it is. And I had never really looked into design patents. I knew that there was a term because all of my patents have been, you know, invention patents. You know, they're, they're, they're software or hardware or something. Uh, but it said, uh, but I, uh, two lines from Wikipedia about this said, in the United States, a design patent is a form of legal protection granted to the ornamental design of a functional item. Design patents are a type of industrial design right. And, and the second line is, a U.S. design patent covers the ornamental design for an object having practical utility. 
an object with a design that is substantially similar to the design claimed in a design patent cannot be made, used, copied, or imported into the United States. The copy does not have to be exact for the patent to be infringed. It only has to be substantially similar. Well, and it is. which is <laughs> oh boy, baby. Um, so that's yes, why you like uh, it. <laughs> it exactly. It's and in fact, I I gave one to Mark, my friend, and one to uh, a Starbucks friend of mine. Both are ex BlackBerry users. Neither can live without it oh, now. Wow. Um, and I feel the same way. I mean, it is so much better than typing on the touchscreen. It's 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 funny because I can tell Mark uses his iPhone on his bike, uh, bike you know for like sports instrumentation, and so he's moving it in and out of the case. And sometimes he tries to send me a text when it's when he's not using the typo keyboard, and I always know because there's typos. So, uh, anyway, I, I I think it's probably gone. I think there. I think any any judge or jury looking at this typo keyboard and assuming that BlackBerry has design patents as they must in order to have, have in order to have brought the suit and for a judge to have granted a preliminary injunction barring the sale the further sale of the typo and understand that's a very high bar to meet. No judge does that cavalierly because because the judge would only do this if if he or she was absolutely I mean virtually certain that the that the final judgment would be the same because they are clearly risking dramatically damaging the the company against which this injunction is granted in this case you know the typo keyboard company so i don't know if they'll change the design to be non-infringing apparently and I get, I actually, I got this from your discussion of this on Twit on Sunday, Leo, yours and John's, um, or somebody else brought it up. I think that someone did anyway, but I think it was news to John, so it wasn't he, that they had originally approached BlackBerry and asked for licensing yeah, rights. There was their mistake. They kind of uh, <laughs> raised some attention there. Yeah. 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 It, it, it looks just like the BlackBerry keyboard. That's true. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's it's not as good as the BlackBerry. It's wit it doesn't have the width to be as good and the construction quality is not as great. You saw that the the BlackBerry's bringing back the bold by the way. It's because Really? You know, they're desperate yeah. is why, I'll tell you. Yeah, they're rolling back and going to a previous phone that they're now saying uh, economies of manufacture allow them to make profitably, which apparently they weren't before. And it's outselling the newer junk that they have. So it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm part of the iPhone iOS ecosystem now. It, I'm, I, there's no way I can go back. I've got, you know, iMessage groups of people who all have iOS devices. I love the fact that all of my pads and, 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 and phone are synchronized. And I wish there was a gateway from my PC. That's annoying. Uh, because oftentimes I'm wanting to send, like you know, do, share a bookmark over in through iCloud to an iPad, so that I'll pick it up when I'm when I'm next out. But yeah, I'm I I can't go back much as I like the keyboard. So yes, Leo, I am glad that I have a few spares in the refrigerator. <laughs> oh, you heard me. <laughs> I was. <laughs> 
Were you, 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 oh, I'm, I, oh, I'm yeah. embarrassed now. I mentioned I, that I, a little I, bit. I was not mocking you. Well, I was maybe a little no, on Twitter this Sunday. You know, how, how I, I have... Because it's not untrue. H, I have HP calculators. Everywhere I turn, there <laughs> are minute. HP calculators. What? Be, because, <laughs> I mean, I've got them in drawers. <laughs> and, of course, you loved, You must have loved Dvorak's response. Yeah. Here's, here's two more in cases... <laughs> I wasn't making this up, folks. It, no, He's no got, this is the best. This is the best calculator that was ever that was ever created, and I don't ever want to risk being without it. So I have them all over the place. But I stand uh, corrected; is, they're not in your freezer. It's pretty cold here. <laughs> uh, no, Do you still have not, the? You used to have Palm Sevens in or something in your? In I, your, I the, the Palm Tungsten. I think tungsten. it was. No, it, it was the one that's. Uh, anyway, I was in love with that. I read a, a whole bunch of ebooks on that, and I thought. You know, I never want to be without this. Well, some of these investments don't turn out the way I expect. Some of them do. We love you I've for been, it. <laughs> I'm very happy that I have all the HP calculators that Absolutely. are, you know, that are And available. the typo keyboard because you can't and get And the typo keyboard. I have a, although, here's the problem. iPhone 6 is expected to be substantially larger. Yeah, I have to get And that. so, so much for the typo keyboard. Well, they haven't gone to trial yet. That was just a preliminary injunction. That that doesn't mean that they won't be uh, yeah, back. Doesn't does not you look good, my friend. Doesn't look good. Yeah. No. By the way, Dvorak's uh, response to that was priceless, and I think oh, you did see the it. Timing, the delivery, <laughs> it was perfect. Just like flat, and then Gibson's nuts, <laughs> <laughs> which we made the title of the show in, in your honor. I must. Yeah, say. it was wonderful. <laughs> so. Um, Speaking of nuts, let's talk about Squirrel briefly. Uh, yes. Um, uh, the we are now heading toward fifty-two languages. We're at fifty-one, and I was just asked to add Indonesian to the lineup. So uh, the person I, I sent a message back to the person who asked me for Indonesian. So that takes us to fifty-two. Um, the user interface is coming to life, and just so that people understand that, you know, what you'd expect from me. Um, in looking at the translations that we have so far, I see that the the Asian logographic font or, you know, glyphs, they're, they, they, they're, they tend to be extremely dense, but they would do better with larger font area, you know, with a larger font size. But so they would like to have more height, but they don't consume nearly as much length because they're so expressive in, you know, in in the individual glyphs. So the technology that I have, I've basically I've I've what I've been doing is I as you know from last week I talked about the binary search and the 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 support for languages and how will how how the the uh, the squirrel client will be able to to very quickly extract whatever strings it needs in the language that it's set to use um, in order to use them. So what I've done is in order to properly render this wide array of languages, I have a I have several stages that the application goes through after startup before it even appears on the screen. And it's pretty instantaneous. I don't think anyone will notice that anything has happened. And that is it, it takes a, 
in, in, in the user interface and all of the UI panels are, are there at grc.com, I, this is the, the most interface-heavy app I've ever written. You know, most of mine are like a single panel that you has, it has a couple buttons on it and it tells you what you want to know. Or the DNS benchmark, I use the rich text format control to create some scrollable dialogue. But Squirrel leaves all of those behind. There's, you know, there's a ton of UI because I want to, you know, take people in baby steps through it. I wanted to make it easy to use and also have it explain itself as it goes. So I start off by, by taking a, one of the longer strings, which fits within a rectangle in the UI and, and render in the target language that string into the rectangle. And Windows, of course, handles line wrap. So that'll tell me how large in the target rectangle that language's equivalent is. And so the first thing I do is increase the height of the font pixel by pixel until that reference string no longer fits in the rectangle. Then I back it back by one pixel. So what that has the effect of doing is it, it allows a font which is more expressive because it contains more content in a smaller area. It, it gives it credit for the fact that it doesn't end up being as long by allowing it to be higher and still fit within the allotted space. So that sets the height for the font. Then the, the, the client rifles through every single string which is wrapped like that, that, that is, you know, body copy text, to verify that they all fit within the target area that they're allotted. And if anyone doesn't, then the entire dialogue expands by 20 pixels. And then we test it again, 20 pixels, test it again, 20 pixels, test it again. So uh, until that particular one does fit, and then I continue, I don't go back and start, I just keep going because of course all the other ones up to then fit in the, in the regular size. So once we're through with that pass, what we have is we have a font which is as large as it can be, assuming the default dialogue, and if we're looking at a language which is substantially longer than English, and there are a number of them, then the, the user interface has been stretched horizontally such that all of the strings in that language fit within the designated space. And once that's done, since, and, and, that, and that is all about the sort of the, the, the body copy text, the UI also has a headline and a subhead on many of the dialogue pages. And so after the, the width has been set, then I go back and find the largest font size where all the headlines can fit within the headline size and all the subheads can fit within the subhead size. That We lock it all down and then the, dial, the first dialogue appears. So it's, 
it's handling multiple languages the way you'd expect <laughs> me to handle them, which is I, ha I think it will, it will right out of the gate work well and, um, and be uh, viewable for everyone. And I forgot to mention that before doing any of that, I also scale to the, the font size which the user has set on their system. You know how Windows, you can have it set to like large fonts if you want everything to be larger. So I first scale everything up to that, then go through all this. So it also honors the, the user's individual local font size settings. So, uh, and it's working, by the way. What I just described yesterday uh, came to life. So because I have so much UI, I wanted to, and I wanted to do justice to handling multilingual stuff correctly, I built a user interface engine essentially that allows me to create a description of the individual UI panels, which it then renders um, taking the, the specific language that it's rendering into account. And uh, I'm, it's looking good. It's and exciting. I did get, yeah, I got a nice note from uh, some guy named Andreas in Sweden uh, on the 18th of March. He sent it. He said, hi, Steve. And he says, and Leo, yes. just to include you, Leo. Uh, yes. Uh, he says, I like to thank you for Spinrite. A while back, my MacBook Pro would not boot up. The funny thing is that I rarely shut down my computer at the end of the day. I usually just put it to sleep. But on this occasion, I did shut it down. As I did, it hit me that my last backup was a couple of days ago, and I had some files which had not been backed up. But I brushed it off, thinking I could back up these files once I start my computer the next day. And what could go wrong? It will not be any problem. Boy, was I wrong. When I came back and tried to start my computer... It would not boot into OS X. How hard I tried with recovery disks and other tools, but nothing would help. I was able to boot into my Windows partition, so I knew that something was wrong with my OS X partition. In Windows, I was able to purchase and download Spinrite immediately from you, though sitting on the edge of my seat, hoping my Windows partition would not crash as well. With some tinkering, I got Spinrite going. Once it had finished, my Mac would boot up like nothing had happened, working faster and smoother than before. I was able to back up all my files, and just to be safe, I bought and installed a new SSD. So big thanks for saving my files. Best regards, Andreas. Yay. And thank you, Andreas, for sharing the story. And for what it's worth... The copy of Spinrite you own will keep your SSD running well, too. Just run it on level two from now on. Yeah. That was a great tip you gave us. And since so many people are moving to SSD, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. We're going to come back. I've got questions for you. You've got answers via the Twitterverse. But first, a word from sharefile.com from Citrix. The, uh, speaking of HTTPS, the secure way to share files, all the file transfers are done over... Uh, secure SSL, HTTPS connection. Um, that's something you can say for some email, but not all email. In fact, email is inherently, I think, insecure unless you are encrypting it because it goes over the public Internet. There are other issues, too. And, and nowadays in business, uh, we're sending a lot of email attachments, and I think that's really the wrong 
the wrong thing to do. Uh, email, besides being insecure, um, you could get bounce backs because we're sending these big files and most email systems don't like that. Uh, and we're always telling everybody, don't open attachments in email. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're, you're, you're encouraging them to do that. So let's not send attachments. Let's send share file links instead. Share file is secure. It's easy. If you're using Outlook, it looks just like you're sending email attachments. But you're not. You're sending a secure link. And you control it. You see who opens it. You control how many times they can download it for how long. You you have permissions. That's something email can't offer you. You can access anything in your share file folders anytime, anywhere, on any device. They have apps for all the uh, smartphones. ShareFile synchronizes folders. So I have, so I use ShareFile all the time. I have ShareFile folders. And then I use the ShareFile uh, sync app to synchronize those folders so that uh, they match up on, this, on the uh, cloud to the folder on my desktop. Then it's a simple thing for me to send a file. In fact, I can show you if I log into my ShareFile account for those of you who are watching on uh, video. reason I do this is because I, I, I use ShareFile every day to send audio files to the radio stations. Uh, you can see, first of all, that it's branded. It has my Twit logo on it. That's one nice thing about ShareFile. It, you, and they, they don't have to sign up for anything. There's no come on even. It just says, here's the link that Leo, you know, here's the file Leo wanted to send you. Um, I frequently send uh, audio files. Let me pick a voice track. Yeah, I did this for WFIR uh, radio. So let's say I want to send this to them. I click the send button. I can make an email on the on the website, but I can also get a link. And this is what I'm going to show you because I want to show you the, the various uh, settings. Email me when the item's been downloaded. I can ask recipients to enter name and email before downloading. I have access expirations that range from a day to a year to never. I can say you can have unlimited downloads or 10 or less. All right, now let's send the file. I'm going to get a, uh, you see that HTTPS link, a secure link. Uh, and when they click, and I, which I'll then attach to an email, when they click the link in the email, here's what they're going to see. It's very clear, very simple. They see a WAV file. They see my logo. They don't see share file. They don't see a login. They don't see an ad. They see a very simple button that says download. And they know what they're going to get. They know how big it is. It couldn't be clearer. And since I deal with a lot of folks who aren't tech guys, uh, this is a very helpful technology for me. I want you to try ShareFile. If you're in business and you're sending attachments, if you're sending files, this is a very, very good solution. And I've tried them all. I want you to try it free for 30 days. You'll agree. ShareFile.com. Click there. Now, this, they make this a little hard. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess if you didn't have to jump through hoops, it wouldn't be fun. They put the link that I want you to click way, they kind of hide it away at the very top of the page. So go to sharefile.com and you'll see, you know, start my free trial, big button. You'll see a menu item, try it free, big button. No, no, I don't want you to click that. Click that little tiny link there that says podcast, podcast listeners, click here. If you would, I know, please click that one. And then when it asks you uh, where you heard it, Please enter security now in the entry box. And, in fact, another thing you might want to do is select the um, select the business that you're in because they'll customize it for But It's medical, legal, advertising, whatever you're in, it, uh, you know, so that you know it's a SEC regulations or HIPAA or whatever it is that you've got to live up to. ShareFile will do it. ShareFile.com, please. Click the link at the top of the homepage and type in security now 
All right, I've got questions for Mr. Gibson. Are you ready? You bet. All right. Uh, let me pull them up. Question numero uno. Wait a minute, that's not it. Uh, da, 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 da. Here we go. Les Ramsey in Dublin, Virginia. Didn't yep. even know there was a Dublin, Virginia. He uh, wonders whether government authorities can compel CAs, certificate authorities, to relinquish certificates. This is relevant to that discussion of HTTPS. <sighs> In fact, one of the things people said, you know, is they're reading that Computer World article trying to come up with good reasons why HTTPS is a bad idea. That's one of the things people say, well, it could be spoofed. I listen to your podcast every week. It's my primary source of information and education regarding security. While listening to the discussions regarding iOS security, SSL, TLS, and encryption, I wondered if the authorities can compel a certificate authority to divulge, divulge customers' certificates, does that thwart security and leave us with only end-to-end -end encryption as a last resort to privacy? Thank you for SpinRight. I've been a customer since version 5 was first available. It saved my bacon numerous times. So I, I saw this and I thought, you know, this sort of wants me to do a reality check. Um, because I wonder if we're just not being foolish. Here we are all getting ourselves worked up over issues of, of protocol and how random are the random numbers. And, oh, my Lord, you know, this extension and SSL can be used for that and so forth. At the same time, our browsers are trusting hundreds of certificate authorities who we're assuming and the browser publishers are assuming are always acting in our best interests. And Les's question, and I've seen it voiced in other, in other ways and, and contexts, but I wanted to note it because how can we imagine if the NSA has the intent that they've been shown now to have, that, that they don't have a certificate authority in their pocket, that, that they're not a certificate authority themselves who you know, are operating a front as a, a, a reliable authority or that they don't have someone planted inside a certificate authority, or that, in fact, it's not just as easy as having a judge issue an order to induce a certificate authority to produce a certificate for them. I mean, I, I guess my point is that, as we know, the and we talked about in the iOS context a lot, this notion that the weakest link in the chain is the one that tends to get exploited. And the certificate authority system relies on the trustworthiness of not just one organization, but all the ones that our browser trusts, including famously the Hong Kong post office. <laughs> but wait a minute. Wait a minute. You see what I mean? Yes. You see what but I mean? Wait a it's minute. Just Help me with this. 
So I am a, the NSA. I want to get. I want to be. Um, this would you would use this for a man in the middle attack, right? I would like to be in between Leo and Gmail. Correct. I couldn't do it as the Hong Kong Post Office. I'd have to get a certificate that said I was Google from the same certificate authority, wouldn't I? Or no? Um. Well, and I'd have to convince Leo's browser. I mean, how Chrome. what would how would you use this as an attack? Chrome, to Google's credit, Chrome is going a long way to mitigate this because, for example, Chrome cannot have Google certificates spoofed because Chrome knows Google certificates through the, the the process known as certificate pinning, where you 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 where where the browser itself knows the serial number of the certificate. As far as we know, there is no way for anyone to create a an identical fraudulent certificate they can create a good certificate but it will not be identical so so google go, using chrome and google is a, an instance where due to the extra measures google has taken th their links are extra strong but imagine that you were the NSA and you wanted to intercept your use of Facebook. Um, so all the NSA has to do is induce any one of the, I, I don't, I'm not even sure if it's not thousands. I think it's thousands of certificate authorities who your, who your browser trusts to sign certificates to issue them a certificate for Facebook.com. So at that point, the NSA has a certificate signed by an authority who your browser trusts. So that when, when they do a man-in-the-middle attack, that is when they intercept the connection, they see that you're trying to connect to, to, to Facebook.com. So they respond with their certificate, which your browser, even Chrome, because Chrome doesn't have special knowledge about all domains or certificates, only about Google's, where they are pinned. So so they respond with a, a certificate signed by an authority who your browser trusts, one of any of the thousands of authorities your browser trusts, and no alarms are raised, Nothing strange happens. Maybe it's an EV certificate, and you even get an extra green bar in in the browser. So that's all it really. That's all it means. It means that that while it isn't trivial for for mass eavesdropping, it's just it's impossible to imagine that the NSA isn't just laughing at us all worried about this that the idea that they can't eavesdrop on anyone's connection that they choose to it's it's it strains credibility that that or credulity <laughs> that that they wouldn't be able to mint any valid certificate that they chose to it, it, given given the fact that our browsers are trusting all of the certificate authorities that are issuing valid certificates on the internet. Yeah, I don't in think you have to worry SSL about the Hong Kong Post Office. I'd worry much more about a CA operating in the United States who would have to respond to yes. a national security letter uh, silently 
and yes. thoroughly. So, I mean, and, it, and, and be gagged. Yeah, be yeah. gagged by it. So, uh, I think it's not un- unreasonable to assume that the NSA I, would do that. Now, you're right. It's not good for mass surveillance. It's it, you would have to say, hey, I really want to read Steve's email to do right. it. And you'd ha- and in this case, you'd have to get a national security letter. You'd have to go to the ACA. They probably have already got a CA. They must have a CA in their pocket. In their pocket, yeah. Yes. there's One of these thousands that are browser trusts is not actually... I mean, they're in the CA business because they had to prove and look like a CA and act right. like a CA. That's easy. In order to get the... Yeah, exactly. It is because the browsers don't want to you know, unfairly deny a little startup CA from having an opportunity For to be in business. For all we know, the Hong Kong post office is actually in Mun- Muncie, Indiana and <laughs> run by the NSM. Well, that's for all we, you know... Uh, actually, no, I know it's not because we've had a listener who sent us photos. Leo. Of the Hong Kong they Post were, Office? They were standing in front, and he, and, and, and he said, Steve, you're not going to believe it. Here I am. St- I find myself standing in front of the Hong Kong Post Office. I probably trust I wonder, them more I, than I do. I wonder others. if I can go get a certificate. I don't know if I trust VeriSign. Um, yeah. You know, but you can also get very paranoid about all this. I think that this is the risk of this. Is Well, yes, and so it's important to note that they could not afford to do it on a wholesale basis because in fact the more they did it the greater chance right. is that somebody would spot it right for example google thanks to chrome pinning chrome's certificate pinning google has been the one who spotted when when their certs have been spoofed because chrome sends an immediate message back to the mothership that says whoa i just got someone just connected to me with a bogus Google certificate. Yeah, yeah. And so Google instantly knows that. So the, because they, they, it would be a completely valid certificate from some domain that, that, that they're wanting to, to intercept the traffic from, but it's not going to be the identical certificate. And that's the whole, you know, my, my, my whole um, uh, fingerprinting, certificate fingerprinting service that I put up on GRC last year. That's what that's all about, is the you, the serial numbers cannot be duplicated. So if you're seeing a certificate that doesn't match the one that GRC sees, then there's a reason to worry. Hmm. But you're right. It's not wholesale, but it's targeted. And we just have to assume that they anybody they want to target, they're able to mint certs on the fly, intercept their connections and decrypt all their communications. It just means that something we've always known. Don't use the internet for something you want to keep private. But that's always yeah. been the case. Yeah. And, and in fact, that, that's a very good point. We have a, we have a, a, a question a little bit later about, about uh, Turkey's attempts to block. Yeah. And it's, and, and my, what I'll, you'll hear me saying <laughs> shortly is that the internet wasn't meant for that. I mean, we're we're we are extending it in all kinds of ways beyond what it was meant to do, and it doesn't do very well. The things it wasn't meant to do. When bad guys wanted to talk to one another, they actually met in person. That was usually how they did it. Then they yeah. used the phone, and they realized that's not safe. Brian Whedon tweets via Twitter: The White House is looking to replace Obama's BlackBerry with quote secure end quote Android, but why not iPhone? I thought that was interesting. This was an art. He links to an article 
which does show, you know, I mean, famously, Obama... I don't think he uh, was using a BlackBerry. I beg to differ. I think he was using a very secured Windows 6.5 phone last time I, I saw anything. He wanted a BlackBerry. I thought he, he always had a BlackBerry. He'd always had a BlackBerry, and they took and it away from him. Ah, he wanted they, to keep it. Well, the I last I saw, they took it away from him, and they have a secure... Um, now I'm looking at this, and I think he's still using it based on the photo I'm seeing here in this article, a secure Windows 6.5 phone. Ah. They say that's a so, BlackBerry. Maybe it is, but I, I think so that might I be sent, a misapprehension. I sent, I sent three tweets back in response to Brian's note just to answer him. I said, first of all, I said, Apple's approach is perfect for the Apple's approach is perfect for the typical consumer who doesn't want the responsibility for security. That is, you know, basically, we've offloaded that to Apple. Apple's going to, you know, curate the iTunes store. They're going to do everything they, they can to keep bad guys out of their ecosystem and out of our phone. It's not our problem. Perfect for the typical consumer. I said, second tweet, but Android, Android hardware, which is also lovely, can also fully accept fully vetted software that's that's fully known which ios cannot offer and my third tweet was or stated differently there's no way to remove apple from the iphone that's not okay for the president of the united states and and so so i to me an android phone is absolutely the right solution for that scenario where where presumably the NSA or some group that really understands security is is providing that operating system soup to nuts in that phone and and can you know absolutely vouch for how it's operating and, and what it does you know so yeah the, you know I'm sure the, Brian tweeted this in the wake of our three episodes of coverage of iOS security. And but it's not to be confused with you know while the security in iOS is great it is utterly Apple centric and you know they need something way more secure than that. I'm looking. It is a BlackBerry. I'm looking at uh, there's a ZDNet photo gallery of all the devices the president. And when you uses. said Windows six point five, well 6. that was see this was what I remembered. Uh, when they when he took office and that's probably one of the problems here. Well, I absolutely remember he. When he, he had was a BlackBerry, mis- and they took yes. it away from him. Yes. And the phone they gave him is one that the, you know, this is a military, div- a division of the military that secures communications in the White House, and they have a, you know, Tempest-level security smartphone. But, of course, it's not a late model because it takes them a while to do all this. And I, as I remember at the time, it was Windows 6.5. Uh, that I don't, it does look like a black, the one on the, the black no, one Leo, is a BlackBerry. I've got, I've got some trios in the fridge that I, I could say. <laughs> president might want what we don't know is what's you know i i truth is i wouldn't let the president use a blackberry if he's using black blackberry servers because no. then his communications are going into canada right and uh i don't care how vaunted the security is that's not what you want i don't think there's any so chance I, that that, that, that was ever very much that <laughs> even if he's using a blackberry that he's using anything going into canada yeah yeah <laughs> like that so i don't i i just i don't know i'm looking at the phone and it's hard to tell and i think there's the general presumption that he uses a blackberry because much of the government does but i don't know if that's a, a fair assumption 
Yeah, I, I do miss mine, but I love all the other toys. Yeah. You know, I mean, gee, I can't get 2048 for the BlackBerry. Looks like he no uses... One, uh, it's hard not to get it for the iPhone. <laughs> or yeah, you need 2048. Oh. Looks like he uses a Nortel phone, though. That's the good news. Or is that Cisco? No, that's Cisco. That's a Cisco phone on his desk there in the Oval Office. It looks yeah, to me... Yeah, you're right, it is. And in fact, there was a, there was a, a photo that went out uh, Kerry and he and one of his national security advisors, I don't remember whom, were all sitting around. It was during the, the Putin call, I think. So it was like, oh, look at that, you know, Cisco phones. Yeah. But again, nothing that they're using is going to be anything like no. the stuff we use. I would hope. <laughs> I would really now, do we, hope. Is there still a, there, there's not still a red phone on the desk, is there? The hotline to the Kremlin. I don't think so. He probably... They use ham radio. Yeah. (laughs) Question uh, number three comes from Paul Cutts, also via Twitter, P. Cutts. He uh, says, if Apple's keychain crypto is no good for iCloud, then surely the whole phone is insecure. I... I, We... We... Discussed at the end of of chapter three of iOS security last week, that the really suspicious thing was that the architect from what Apple wrote, the architecture seemed to be one that would allow, if this P two fifty six elliptic curve, which it appears Apple uses nowhere but for securing the keychain in the iCloud. Everywhere else they use the good 255.19 elliptic curve that everyone is using and that they use everywhere. That 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 particular use would allow the keychain to be read but not modified. And so we ran out of time. So I wanted to take this opportunity to say for anyone who is concerned by that, Apple does provide in the iOS settings very granular control over what iCloud is used for. And you can turn off your keychain syncing through iCloud and only the keychain syncing through iCloud. And it'll stop. Presumably, it will wipe what's there. But I would then change my passwords that were synced on the keychain after I turn off iCloud syncing. Again, for those who, who from hearing what we know, um, have reason to think that it, it's worth doing that. So it's certainly possible for everything else to remain secure, yet this one thing that we know about that seems a little suspicious, eh, just, you know, to choose not to use that. Uh, tweet number four comes from David Peterson at dpeters11 regarding uh, e- Emmett on XP. Um, it does help some. This is what was Emmett? It was the Microsoft. Uh, that, uh, that's the Enhanced Mitigation Experience mitigation. Toolkit. Right. Yes. But ASLR, that is Address Space Location Randomization, isn't available. Oh. Oh, yeah, because XP doesn't support it. Correct. Yeah. Chrome itself works, but I couldn't get Flash working. <laughs> so so there are a couple points here. Um, first of all, he was right. Um, DEP, D-E-P, which is the, uh, the data execution prevention, 
Depp was introduced in XP and was not used except by Microsoft's own code. And then there was a setting somewhere you could you could flip to turn it on for all your apps and then find out what broke as a consequence. <laughs> right. And you were also able to turn it on or maybe turn it off selectively. Anyway, there were there, there were controls for DEP. ASLR, we first talked about in the context of Vista, which was where that was introduced. So, so uh, David's right. You would you would be, you know, e- e- Emmett won't help you manage ASLR on XP, only DEP, but it will do that. And when he said Chrome itself works, but he couldn't get Flash working, I heard a, from a lot of feedback from people who either had extensive experience already with Emmett or were experimenting with it after we talked about it some more. And and it is exactly, I think, the way I characterized it, which is to say it's an expert's tool. It is not something for everyone. I mean, it, it makes no script look like a walk in the park. And, you know, some people feel that even no script is asking too much from people to say, oh, look, the site seems broken. Oh, I'll turn scripting on. Oh, now it works. Um, Emmett is like that on steroids. And so it's very powerful, but with that power comes responsibility, which is why it's not built in. It's why it's not there all the time. Microsoft says, you know, most people just don't want this much. But for our listeners, especially those who want to crank things up if they if they plan to continue using XP past its end of patch point, uh, I think it's a valuable tool. Um, here's a longer I would say, one. I would say plan to spend some time with it. <laughs> yes. And, of course, the people we're worried about with XP are not using Emmet. A paranoid listener somewhere in the beautiful American wilderness poses a question about security certificates. Steve, I was listening to episode 443. Sisyphus. I use a small, non-profit Italian email provider. There you go. (laughs) Which gives me POP and SMTP over SSL. In order for their service to work, I had to download and install a certificate they provide. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, Yeah. I've heard of such things. So my question is, why should I trust DigiCert, VeriSign, or the Hong Kong Post Office more than this provider? It seems like a fair bet that if I download the certificate from their webpage where instructions are on what to do with it also reside, it belongs to them. I don't care who they are behind or beyond my email provider, which is verified, verified by the fact that, in fact, my email works with this cert. Is there some insecurity issue I'm missing? Love the show. Love your software. Wish every developer employed the painstaking diligence that you do to write such beautiful and efficient code. Okay, so this is an interesting question because he's saying he there's a specific site that he wants to be able to establish SSL connections with. They apparently, for whatever reason, probably cost, choose not to purchase a certificate from a certificate authority that his system already knows and trusts. Instead, they have presumably a self-signed certificate, so they've just signed it. And they've said, here's our certificate. That's kind Your of the equivalent of giving you a password and having you log in by a password, right? It is. Yeah. And and so so he notes that 
They're making it available on their web page. I, I don't know if their web page is HTTPS. That would be interesting because if they're really so unwilling to spend money on, on security, is their site even secure? Of course, that would raise flags because it would mean that there was, there was more opportunity for, for shenanigans. But let's assume that it is that their site is HTTPS, but their email system isn't. So they're able to securely deliver to the user a certificate for them, which the user then trusts. Okay. On its face, I don't see a big problem with that. The reason, though, that is that that's not the way the world works is it doesn't scale. And that's the beauty of the certificate authority model where our browsers pre-trust someone and then those someones, the certificate authorities, verify the identity of people who want to purchase certificates from them. So the beauty of that is it scales. That is to say, with a with a with a foundation of trust in these then this block of certificate authorities we we don't have to download and install individual certificates for every website we visited clearly if we did https would have a much harder time happening than it's already had i mean it's been available forever and you know still it's it's not you know, predominant, although it's certainly becoming that rapidly as as we've been talking about. But, but the idea is there's you know the there's more responsibility on the part of the user. There's as I mentioned, there's the danger of the channel through which you obtain the certificate being insecure. So there's that danger. But fundamentally, if you got certificates from individual places you visited all other things being equal you'd have a you know a big pile of certificates and when you attempted to connect your your browser would verify the identity through that certificate and and you'd connect so so mostly i think the problem is that it doesn't scale um and um and again it's it's worrisome that that you're using sort of the same channel to obtain the certificate that you are then using to trust and so forth. So it's, uh, I I would say um, in this instance, you're probably okay. And the reason it's not done more pervasively again, is that it just, it would be too big a pain for everyone. It's better to have certificates pre-trusted. Although as we've just been talking about with that comes (laughs) its own set of problems. Pre-trust is like pre-crime. Uh, question six, an anonymous listener uh, from the Squirrel feedback page. How does Squirrel allow for identity sharing? For example, if a family uses one central Amazon, Netflix, Hulu account for all their media access, how can we share Squirrel tokens? We all want access to the same account, but Squirrel is specifically designed to be unique. Yeah, um, that's a very good point. Uh, the way... The, we, the way this is handled is we have assumed in the design that you might have a centrally used machine that the family shares. You know, it might be the, the family shared computer. And, 
And normally people are individually authenticating with their usernames and passwords as they go places. And probably in a shared environment, they're a little more schooled about not staying logged in and about explicitly logging off when they're done using a site. Otherwise, you know, somebody else comes along and is able to use it. But switching among accounts, you know, login accounts, that will that will prevent, you know, a, a single account session from from persisting. What Squirrel does Oh, and here's where we wish we, here's where we, wish we had our <laughs> what, what Squirrel does is allow you to define as many identities as you want. So, you know, mom and dad and brother and sister can can each have their own named identity, and there can be one called family. And so all they have to do at any time that you're about to authenticate, uh, Squirrel pops up a dialogue where, where you verify and prominent in the center of that is the identity, which is if there are more than one, which is which has which is currently selected. And there is a link right there to change identity. So nobody will know anybody else's password. So you don't have to worry about forgetting to change the identity. But if you were logging into Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, any of these shared ones, you, and, and, it was set, and, and it was set to your identity in your own session, you could just click on the, the, the little link in the UI, uh, change it to family, and then, and then you know, use the, the commonly known family password to say, yes, I'm a member of this family, and then you're logged in. So uh, we've got that covered. Yay! Uh, number seven already? Wow. John yeah. Clayton via Twitter asks, "What we do talk about Threema a lot, which is a, uh, a secure publicly crypto-based uh, text messaging service. Under what is a Threema ID in their FAQ, they reference submitting a public key to a directory. How does that differ from iMessage? I thought that was a, a good question because, of course, I was complaining about iMessage and the fact that Apple manages the public key directory and therein lies a potential problem. I should mention that I saw some people uh, it, as I was going through feedback who were saying, hey, Steve, you know, um, you're complaining that Apple is doing this in the way they are, but... You didn't complain about all the other facts that were in evidence from the document, and all they have to do is change any of that if they want to. And that's absolutely true. For me, the distinction is that without changing the architecture of iMessage at all, Apple, and this is the point that I made, could operationally add a public key and receive messages that they're able to decrypt. So I do think that is a distinction with a difference um, in terms of the the technology that exists in the phone, in the firmware, and of course in the hardware. And in here, this is just the function of the service. So to answer John's question, what I what I like about what Threema is doing is that it is inherently transparent. And that's the problem with iMessage. We don't see the public keys of the people that we're messaging. We don't even see how many public keys there are. 
So, you know, there could be an additional one and we'd have no idea, no, no idea that that was going on. With, with Threema, we're, we're responsible for managing the public keys of the people we trust. That's a barrier that, that Apple removes at the cost of security, which, which Threema makes explicit. And I love it that they make it explicit because that is the sole, the sole point of security. Remember that, that, that Threema has three dots that are either, um, what are they, three reds, maybe a yellow, and then a, or one, one, one red, two oranges, and three <laughs> greens, I think it is. Yeah, because the three and, is good. More is good. Yes. And, and the idea is that the only way you can get three green dots is if you present your phones to each other and the phones snap the, each other's QR code format public key. So there you've had a meeting of the devices and you absolutely know that the public key you've received belongs to the owner. What the 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 intermediate stage uses a a directory where you're where you're assuming that you know the 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 directory is is good and as I recall there are hashes that are shown so you can you can get the key and again they've they've exposed everything so you can then say to your friend hey I think I've got your public key. Is this the hash? And your friend says, yep, that's the thumbprint or fingerprint of my public key. So there you're able to, out of band, verify that you have the public key for the person you believe you do. So, so that's, that, that, that's the difference. There's, you know, it's fundamentally the same technology, but by burying the management of authentication, Apple has made it easy at the cost of some security. Threema absolutely puts it out in the public. And uh, it's, it's why I just think that's, you know, if I really want, if I absolutely care about having secure messaging, and I don't because I have no real need for it, but if I did, I would use Threema and I would arrange out-of-band exchange of public keys. I you know I have a little the key management is always an issue with uh, with public and private key crypto uh, because yeah. for instance I the, you know uh, PGP keys are kept on key servers MIT runs one and it's propagated all the other key servers and I have made many keys since 1999 when I made my first key <laughs> and you know you're supposed to or I guess you should create a revocation capability so that you can if you want a new key revoke the old one. But I didn't do that. So I probably have 10 or 20, I don't know, some unknown number of keys still on those are servers. They all still valid, do you think? Do, do they yeah. not expire? Well, I never say, see, okay, I, okay, bad key <laughs> hygiene. You should set them to expire and you should have a revocation password or certificate so that you can pull them back. I never did and I don't. And I have no idea well, what the and passwords are. You're, you're are. like me. I mean, you were into it. Because it was available and it was cool, you were playing with it, but you weren't really absolutely depending upon... Because no, no one the, uses it. Right. I love it. So what I do is I make every time <laughs> I, I forget the password or whatever, I make a new key. So I have a current key. It's about a year old. 
but I get email all the time on old keys, and I just all I can do is send them the new key and say, look, this is my current public key. And that, oh, there's another flaw, which is that anybody can create a key with my email address. Yeah. So there, I know there are phony keys up there too. They're no good because I don't have the private key for them. So uh, you know, people do that to to mess with you. I don't think there's any security issue involved unless somebody starts. I don't know. I don't know how it would work. I can't think of a scenario where it'd be bad. They'd have to get my email and everything. Yeah, but, I heard you talk. I was going to say, I, I I heard you talking on Sunday about fake Twitter followers. Oh yeah. That, that you think, and so what is that about? Is that like oh like bots create accounts in order to monitor your feed? No. It's it's a very tenuous way, but people do it. Most uh, more than I would say more than half of all Twitter accounts are spurious. And uh, they're created oh. often by spammers. In fact, I, I get a ton of spam. They'll put you. They'll they'll create the account. They'll put your name in it, and hope that you will follow it. I don't know if they hope you'll retweet it. I don't know what the plan oh. is. They direct yeah. message you if you follow them back. So I don't. I mean, it's a it's a it's not the best form of spam. But these guys, they got plenty of time. Yeah, they got nothing free. better to do. Um, so there's certainly inactive accounts. There's probably a lot of those, but a good many of them um, are spammers, and I see it all the time. I get a ton of yeah. uh, Twitter spam. So, but it's nothing to worry about. It's but it is germane if you want to invest in Twitter, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, actually, speaking of Twitter, this is a this is a good one. Uh, yes, from uh, E Strategy Pro. Uh, of course, Turkey famously has tried to block Twitter. Um, and they did it because they changed. I guess I guess everybody in Turkey uses the same internet service provider, or it's a government-run internet service provider. They modified the DNS so that you can't get to Twitter. So, and you'll see it in graffiti on the sides of buildings. Eight dot eight dot eight dot eight. Google's <laughs> DNS server. People. So people just fixed it. They said, "Well, we won't use the government DNS server. We'll use a uh, Google." Well, now, he says, Turkey reportedly intercepted Google's DNS by redirecting 8.8.8.8 to their own DNS. Can direct IP address connections be spoofed? So, yes. Um, it kind of takes government-level yes. capabilities. Um, yeah, it, it actually it takes anybody who can interpose themselves in the traffic stream. And certainly, a governmental body has the ability to impose whatever restrictions they choose to on the data traffic flowing across their border or, you know, into and out of the country. DNS is one of the oldest protocols. It was created back in the beginning. And... It was, and it really hasn't changed much. We've talked about DNSSEC, DNS security, the idea that DNS records could be signed, cryptographically signed, to to prevent spoofing and to allow the recipient to verify them. Um, Open DNS has the DNS curve system where they essentially establish their own um, elliptic curve crypto between users of open dns clients and the servers for the same reason to 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 encrypt and and protect the connection so there are there are things that have been done since but 99.99999% I mean today dns is not secure 
they what it, it was designed by the guys that know what that that know what they're doing to be super lightweight. So it uses UDP, which is just a single packet. It doesn't use you know the the, the whole three packet TCP handshake. Nor does it then bring up after that an additional secure connection. You know SSL TLS. It simply sends in the in the plane uh, a small little query in a single packet off to the DNS server, assuming that that's where it's going. And a response comes back containing the IP address and some additional information that they asked for. And it works, and it's good enough for everyone to rely on. Um, because it's not perfect, as I said, there have been efforts to to in, improve its security. And we really do de, you know, depend upon the security of DNS. Largely, it's secure because normally our DNS queries don't go very far. Most ISPs, for example, host and manage their own big iron DNS servers and all of their customers' DNS queries go just to the DNS server and back. That minimizes their transit bandwidth. We've talked about you know the benefits of caching transit in order to minimize minimize cost to the the ISP um, because these these servers cache all of the DNS queries that they look up from elsewhere and then all of the customers get it from the cache so it's it's very efficient but it is trivial and this is the key word trivial for an, any entity like the Turkish government to decide, I mean, to see what's going on, to see 8.8.8.8 graffiti on the walls and to instruct the ISP to to essentially see a UDP packet coming from there and redirect it to their own DNS server, which blocks whatever they want to, and then respond as if they were 8.8.8 back to the system that asked the question in the first place. So unfortunately, um, nowhere currently is DNS security required unless you go to extreme measures like with with the um, the DNS curve system um, and a proprietary DNS server organization like OpenDNS. Um, do I mean OpenDNS? Is it um, open? Yeah, open DNS. You mean yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, it just seemed like that was more of a project name than a company no, name. No, so it's like, yeah, you know, it does, doesn't I'm it? Like, <laughs> I didn't think of that. Oh, open SSL, but they use, open uh, VPN. They, they support. The fact they were one of the first to support DNSSEC, and yeah. uh, they do a good job. Yeah, but any again, ISP could do this. In other words, yes, um, it's. Well, it, it's got a. It, you need a hierarchy, very much the way we have a, a certificate hierarchy. But the root is, I think, all of the root servers are now signed, so we have the beginning of a hierarchy. It, it just, you know, it's like why is it taken companies so long to go to HTTPS, even though it's been obvious they should for years? It's just, it's just inertia, and everyone's busy and has priorities and other things to do. So, the bad news is, the internet. And this was a point I made earlier that I said I was going to talk about, was never designed 
as a means of exerting control. It was actually, I'm not sure that it was designed for the reverse. It's been adopted for the reverse as, you know, the great unifier and freer and, and you know, nobody owns it, all of that. Um, actually, it's just beautiful, simple technology that is incredibly effective. Um, and it's also very prone to abuse. And so if somebody inside Turkey uh, is having a hard time getting to Twitter because the Turkish government just thinks, you know, they're anti-social media, apparently, and think that social media is the scourge, um, there's really not much anyone can do because uh, it's, you know, again, the net it was was not designed to to be you know, controllable. Uh, but if somebody really wants to exert the control, you know, all the buttons are there allowing them to do it. You've seen the, uh, I guess they do this every year, the uh, key signing ceremony for DNS that they do every year. The seven, the seven. Uh, not, <laughs> not, 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 not DNS. It's the, it, it, it it's the, the root um, servers. I thought it was the yeah, root servers. Sorry. Yeah, 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 you're right. The yeah. DNS root servers, yes. Yeah. I mean, they have... It, it's actually a physical ceremony. Yes. There's yes. a physical metal key. Each of the primary 14 key holders owns, owns, owns a traditional metal key to a safety deposit box, which contains a smart card, which activates a machine that creates a new master key. Yeah. Love this. Yeah. It's very cool. It's very I think we secret have, society. I think we have two of them in the in the U.S. They're 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 you know it's international, but I think I remember that we're we have two key holders in the U.S. I don't remember now what the distribution is. Yeah, let me see if I can. One of the key holders is a Russian. There's several internet. I mean, uh, several non-governmental organizations. Right. Um, Lynn Lipinski, PR for ICANN. Here's a picture. Signs the official register of the key ceremony. <laughs> uh, this is just this is a great article which was in the Guardian uh, last month. Um, they do eye yes. uh, you know retina recognition and I mean it is it is a little Deus Opie. I mean it is a little uh, yep yep. And look at those boxes. Yeah. Ooh. Um, I'll I, I don't know. I it's a. I, I'll find the information. And if you want to, the easiest way to do it is key, DNS key ceremony in the Guardian. Uh, it was February 28th. Highly recommended. What a great story it is. Yeah, neat. Yeah. All right, moving on. Sorry about that. I just remembered that. And Mamanamanas listener asks about crypto libraries on this. Can you be anonymous if you can't pronounce anonymous? About crypto libraries on the Security Now page. Steve, can you mention. Some cryptographic libraries. You once mentioned that a that good crypto is available for free. He's he's not sure if that means free as in beer or free as in freedom. It would be nice to get some pointers. Thanks for your great work. And you've got some notes in here with a number of yeah, I do. And libraries. so I just thought I would. I did a little bit of work. I mean, this just I pulled it out of the air because I have been living and breathing this stuff. Um, Dan Bernstein, uh, who is a you know famous cryptographer who's got that great domain cr.yp.to um uh he set about designing a cryptographic library with the goal that it would be difficult to misuse 
many of the cryptographic libraries are are easy not to they're easy to to well to misuse i'm trying to use a better phrase but i mean it's it's easy not to get the effect that you want even though you think you are from the library you know it, because they're complicated and because crypto is complicated and it's easy to make mistakes so he said okay what is it that people really want to do and let's just facilitate that so he created a library called it's pronounced salt but it's n a c l is the is the way you oh, spell i love it what a geek <laughs> so um so n a c l dot cr.yp.to that's sort of the template for the so like for where everyone has gone i call it a template because it's on, it only compiles to i think like linux or one of the unixes it is not it is not written so that it runs on 32 and 64 and and little indian and big indian and you know everything what happened was the open dns folks wanted to do their dns curve so they started with bernstein's library and completely rewrote it fabulously first of all all open source and really cross-platform. And this is Umbrella Labs. Um, and so I have a link to the original Dan Bernstein Salt because you can just sort of get a feel for it there. But what you want is sodium, <laughs> which is based upon salt. I love this. And free and open source, hosted over on GitHub. Um, it's... Uh, it's very portable. It's very portable C uh, with ports to OS X, all of the BSDs, Windows. It's got Ruby and Python bindings. Basically, well, for example, it's what I'm using for the the Squirrel client because it's got the it's got it's using um, the right curves. It's using Bernstein's two fifty five nineteen curve that everybody is using. I, someone noted that. There's a Wikipedia page for Curve 2519, and Squirrel is now on it. And I noted that I'm in really good company, too, because like all of the, like Threema, for example, is there. And a bunch of other companies that are saying, okay, what's the best way to do the strongest crypto today? And it's to use the, the proper elliptic curve. And sodium is a beautiful expression of bernstein's design of a library that is difficult to misuse also it's worth mentioning the stanford university's javascript crypto library sjcl um which you can just if you just google stanford's javascript crypto library you'll find it i know that some people think that crypto and javascript is is inherently oil and water um, there, I would argue there are places for crypto running on the browser, you know, client side. There are fun things you can do, um, and they've got a beautiful library in in JavaScript. Wasn't and that then, uh, what was that crypt based or crypto based .io that you and I were looking at? Was a JavaScript implementation of uh, OpenPGP? Oh, you mean key based? Key based. 
Keybase.io. Yeah. And they admit, as we talked about, if you're doing it in the web in the browser, you've got to hope that the browser's not compromised and right. nobody's injecting anything. But it's just a great, seemed like such a good idea. Yeah, well, there are many things. I mean, I've, I've, you know, the the password haystacks, the ultra high entropy pseudo random number generator. I mean, I've done the and and the the off the grid project. That's crypto in the browser, taking advantage of of cryptographic pseudo random number generation and and other stuff. So so you know, again, within with with an understanding of the domain, I think it makes sense. And and I just didn't want to forget. Uh, Peter Gutman's, um, or is it Gutman's? Never really was sure how to pronounce his last name. He's been uh, in crypto forever, and he's got a fabulous crypto library just called CryptLib, which is also uh, free and available and open source that he's been maintaining for years. It's very mature, um, although I don't think it offers elliptic curve stuff. So if you want to do public key crypto, the Sodium library um, – uh, that I mentioned from Umbrella Labs is the one, and uh, it's it's what's embedded in Squirrel. And now, all in of the these are, no, are libraries the, that have glue to all the other languages, right? Uh, Sodium definitely does. JavaScript is JavaScript, um, but the other ones, you know, pretty much all languages are able to make C calls, so you're able to like invoke a C a, a, a C function right, right. through them. Pouring rain here, by the way. I don't know if you. Oh, you, is that what we're hearing? Yeah. I was wondering. Can you hear that? that I thought you might be able. Yeah. To, it sounds like white noise, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> we had a tiny little bit at about three a.m. this morning, and then it and it's going to come back for a second round. Although we've had our share of earthquakes in the last. Week. Yeah, Ooh, I didn't ask you. <laughs> uh, did you feel yeah. that? Things fell over. Yeah. Really? Oh. Yeah. No, no damage though. No damage. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving along to question 10, our second to last, our penultimate question. Robert Lowry in Kansas shares some info about open office. Steve, I, I've heard you mention LibreOffice on SN a few times lately, which I've been using for a few years. Then on the last episode, I heard you mention that Oracle had let open office die, which is why I, too, had switched to LibreOffice. However... I discovered about eight months ago Oracle had donated OpenOffice to Apache in June 2011. I have been relying upon OpenOffice more and more, and it has rarely let me down when it comes to reading and editing MS Office documents. LibreOffice was a fork of OpenOffice, and for a while that fork was more active. But that happens a lot in open source. By the way, SpinWrite has saved multiple drives for friends, family, and customers, so thanks for a great product. So I just wanted to put that in. Um, I had we've talked about LibreOffice. Everyone who has tweeted and uses it says it's great. But it sounds to me like if you're looking for an Office alternative, and and it's also the case that Office 2003 stops being supported mm-hmm. next Tuesday Along as well, XP, sec- yeah. sec- second Tuesday of of the month. So. Um, if you're looking for an alternative and you find that there's a document that LibreOffice won't open, then you may find that OpenOffice will. So I wanted to mention that it, it's still around. I did know that Apache had picked it up. So I'm maybe when I meant that they let it die, I meant that it they died let it for die. them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It does run on Java. Does that concern you? What what runs on Java? OpenOffice and Libre. Uh, um. It it 
again, if you keep Java out of your browser, you're fine. Um, for example, uh, crowdin.net that we're using for the Squirrel translations, they provide a Java-based command line system. Uh, basically, a, they have an API to their server, but uh, this allows me to, in my build process, to literally pull the files in real time from Crowdin, so I'm always using the latest versions, which is handy. And so, and in fact, that's why I remember I was I installed Java a while ago, and and was mistakenly impressed by the fact that they said, "Oh, it, look, we're not enabling this for your browsers." And I thought, "Yay!" But then a listener said, "No, that's just because you had it disabled before, and it remembered that it was disabled before, that they're not actually doing that." So I have no problem with Java as a, a as a very mature, a very nice language. It just never should have been stuck on a browser and allowed to have the the rest the outside world talk to it. So as long as you disable it in browsers, and you can do that with Java itself, you know, restrict it itself, and then also don't install the Java plugin in your browsers. But it's it's great as a desktop engine. And uh, the chat room is pointing out that Libra uh, Office, the team has made a concerted effort. To get rid of Java, and only a small part of it now uses Java. Ah, that good. Would probably be eliminated. There's, it's, it's all being replaced. Apparently, probably rewriting good. it in C. C plus plus. Yeah. Nice. Um, and I don't know what the status of, uh, of whether OpenOffice has eliminated Java two or they're trying to. Um, it just shows you how long it's been since I've used any of these because I, of course, remember it, having to download Java to use them. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um. I have no but Java can, but, on my machine, and I run LibreOffice very well, says Denray. You can understand why they did it in the same way that I understand it's why the crowd info. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's truly right once. And, boy, there's a huge incentive for, for doing that. It may also be the case that while you don't have to download Java, that there's a JRE embedded somewhere in the, in the package. Uh-huh. Right? Yes. It's not exactly. that big. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just because you didn't install Java doesn't mean it doesn't use Java. Yeah, in fact, when I was, I think it was, um, it was the Eclipse IDE. I think that's it was Java. the same way. Yeah, that's a yeah. Java. Yeah. Aldo in London, UK, has our last question. He's worried about full disk encryption. I have a question about, well, interestingly enough, full disk encryption. I'd like, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to enable uh, disk encryption on my machine. It's a MacBook Pro, but I'm hesitant for two reasons. Firstly, because of the hit-to-system performance due to increased processing. Second, because it may shorten the lifespan of my hard drive. I'm using an SSD due to the increased number of operations on the data. Could you comment on the effects of disk encryption on system performance and SSD lifespan, as as well as whether the pros outweigh the cons? I would say do not hesitate. None of those concerns are, are... uh, significant enough to to offset the balance of security, even if you're not that needful of security. First of all, although I never understood why, my benchmarks of TrueCrypt showed, and I'm not, I don't know if you're talking about you know Mac full disk encryption or TrueCrypt, but when I benchmarked it, it was faster running under TrueCrypt. Why would that than it be? Was. 
I, I remember when I talked about that. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. Some a coincidence. I mean, I did it multiple times because I didn't believe my results. I took it off, put it on, took it off, put it on, tried all kinds of different tests. Might have been just a coincidence of like the rotational latency and the, you know, interacting with the overhead. The point is that if there is any overhead, it is in to, you know, now in this day and age, absolutely insignificant it is for one thing in, intel has added aes specific instructions to the chip which have been there now for quite a while so that so that the so that if you use aes encryption i mean it just it flies like grease lightning through the intel I, probably the encryption overhead is is insignificant compared to the time you wait for the disk to spin around to get to the sector so that you just you absolutely don't feel a difference at all and so i would say do some measurements of things you know time things do you know do stuff before you encrypt and then encrypt and i think you'll find you can't tell the difference and as for an ssd there actually is again absolutely minimal effect in the case of TrueCrypt, which encrypts the entire drive it makes one read and write pass through the drive so that's not anything that an ssd is going to mind in fact to the degree that it's a little bit like spinwrite it's probably a little good for the ssd to read all of its sectors and then have them written what TrueCrypt what TrueCrypt does is it it doesn't care what's in the sector it just it reads it it encrypts it and it puts it back so it's essentially putting random noise into the sector but it only writes each sector once which any SSD can you know is is going to be tolerating tens of thousands of writes so again don't hesitate um, I would say employ full disk encryption yeah. I use File Vault on the Macintosh, and I haven't noticed on modern Macs anyway a, a speed hit. It does take a while to encrypt the first time you, if you haven't encrypted it before. Well, and, because and, look at the size of our drive. It's a lot of data. Uh, and I uh, and I particularly use it on SSDs because, as we know, it's not always possible to entirely uh, scram or erase an SSD. Yes, some exactly. leak, some data leakage may happen, and so. Um, on uh, smartphones, I always turn it on. And, it, again, it takes a while to uh, implement it. But once it's implemented, I don't notice any, any difference on any device. Yep. I, I think nowadays stuff is pretty fast. Um, wow. Speaking of fast, we've come to the end of this edition <laughs> of Security Now. Thank you, Steve. Do we know what next week uh, holds? We don't. Uh, I've got like a few things on my list. There is um, Quick QUIC. I mentioned a while ago. I actually talked about it earlier in this podcast. Is one of the Google initiatives to see about coming up with alternative protocols, which are, as the name implies, if it's not speedy, then it's quick. Oh. Uh, and uh, really interesting things that they did. So this, we may have ourselves a propeller head episode. Everyone, you know, I know people really enjoy the, the, the deep technical stuff when we plow into that. 
Um, and so if nothing comes up that preempts it, uh, we may talk about that because I did the research months ago and then we just got too busy with emergencies uh, and I want to get back to it because I remember thinking, oh, gosh, Google. I mean, and I, and I, I even talked about it before. I remember now saying that one of the neatest things about Google is they really are they really are working to improve the internet. I mean, it may in some sense be self-serving because yes, you know, their browser gets the benefit of these things and and they're inherently an, an internet-based solution. So things like transaction time and turnaround time and latency really matter. It is frightening when you look at the studies that show how quickly users will give up on a page which is slow to load. They, I mean, it's like amazing how quickly they'll say, ah, forget this and hit back and then choose the next link. Um, so uh, anything we can do to reduce the latency is a good thing. And uh, quick is a very, I mean, they just pulled out all the stops. It's very clever. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's where you'll find uh, 16 kilobit versions of this uh, uh, little bit of a show that uh, makes it even a littler bit of a show, as well as uh, text transcriptions written by an actual human being, grc.com. You'll also find Spinrite there. What's the current version of Spinrite? 6.0. We are shipping and... Uh, of course, our audience all knows that as soon as I am, as soon as I get Squirrel launched, I'll be going back and resuming the work on six one. And my commitment to everyone is just because I think I should. Uh, everyone who ever bought six zero gets six one for free. We are thinking though that we're going to at that time kill off all upgrades from previous versions because it will have been ten years that anybody who had any prior version in this last decade could have upgraded to 6.0. So I think, I mean, it just makes things easier for us not to be, you know, have four people a year do something that, you know, complicates everything. So I think when we when 6.1 occurs, everyone who has 6.0 will be able to upgrade for free. I know that. Um, that will give, uh, you know, uh, awareness of the newer partition table format, the the so-called uh, uh, GUID or EFS format, the the uh, GPT, the GUID partition table, uh, native operation on a Mac, uh, by because we won't we'll no longer get fooled by the keyboard, which is USB on the Mac. I had that working some time ago, um, and direct access to the hardware so huge performance improvement um and frankly i'm i'm hoping that it continues to recover data as well as the current one does not that i don't think it will but the current one just performs miracles and sometimes i'm scratching my head thinking wow you know (laughs) how does it do that which of course all of our users are also thinking uh, well, we'll look for that with a great interest. And, of course, as always, it's free as all upgrades are uh, to Spinrite because he's a generous fella, that Steve. Future question editions uh, can be addressed by going to grc.com slash feedback and leaving your thought or question or apparently tweeting Mr. Gibson at SGGRC. I do keep an eye on my feed. He follows his Twitter feed with great interest. Well, it's, so it's a great you. way... 
you know, th throughout the week, people are saying, hey, I just saw this, I just saw that. And, you know, th these episodes had been built from that largely. Uh, and I think it's really improved their quality. Yeah. Um, we also have... A <laughs> Certainly it's extended their length. <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> we also have uh, um, versions of the show, audio and video, available at our site, twit.tv slash sn. And uh, the best thing, of course, would be to subscribe, and that way you get it each and every week right after we do it. We do do it on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 2000 UTC, live on twit.tv. Uh, we like it if you watch live, too. I interact with the chat room a little bit. Have a little chat. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. We'll uh, see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security.